Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all here this morning. I want to welcome you to Union Baptist Church. We're going to go ahead and do our scripture reading this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 26, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 20. It's part of uh, Luke's writings about Paul's journeys and, and what he's been up to. But this section here deals specifically with Paul's conversion, and more specifically, the point that I want to make through it this morning is the, the purpose of Paul's conversion. And obviously he was converted so that he could have eternal life and bring glory to God, uh, but there was, there was more of a, a point that I want us to see in that this morning, and that is uh, for evangelism, for missions, and so that through his life, other people might be brought into the kingdom of God. So Acts chapter 26 starting in verse 12. Luke writes, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, this is Paul's uh, defense before the king as well too here. So at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those, let me try that again. I appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So you notice there, in starting in verse 16, uh, the purposes that, that Jesus laid out. He told him, I've appeared to you for this purpose. And he says, part one is to appoint Paul as a servant and witness to the things that he's seen. And then he goes on and he says, uh, another part of that purpose is that he be sent to open people's eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, so that they may be brought from the power of Satan to the power of God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. And so that is a focus on missions, a focus on evangelism. That's why it's important. Paul was saved to accomplish those ends. And if you've been saved this morning, part of the purpose of your salvation is that you, like Paul, might take the gospel to the people that never heard it, either around you in the culture that you're in, or perhaps God would call some from here to be missionaries to around the world. But I want us to pray about these things. Pray with me. Fathers, we gather here this morning. We thank you for your word. God, and we're thankful to see the emphasis that you place in your word. God, if I were simply the one always directing the emphasis of the church, it would go in many different directions. But that's the beauty of having your word, reading through the Bible, preaching through the Bible and its completeness, God, because we see the light shine in places that, that in this case, we, we may put some focus on. But oftentimes it focuses on things that we would never see and never say and, and never learn. And so, God, we are thankful for the truth of your word and for the, for the focus that it gives us, for the way that it directs our minds and our hearts to the things that matter. And, God, as we look this morning in this call to worship, one of the things that you're speaking to us and saying this morning is, is that the reason that we have been saved is to proclaim your excellencies to those who live in darkness. God, like Paul, we share in the, in the, the commission as, as Christ told the, the disciples before he left that he has all power in heaven and earth, all authority, and he sends them to go and make disciples. And that is a continual thing that each generation must be doing. And so God, we hear 
your call. We hear your command to go and make disciples. We see it, the uh, purpose for that here in the, in the book of Acts. And God, we want to be about your business. We want to be a church that focuses on missions, that focuses on evangelism. We want a zeal for these things. And God, if we're honest, we'll confess this morning that we love the theory more than we love the practice. And when we get to that, God, it's, it's mostly because we feel underprepared. We feel uh, intimidated about speaking to people. We worry that we are not complete, that we don't have enough knowledge, that what if they ask a hard question? What if they're mean? But God, you're with us in all these things. And, and these are just symptoms of fear of man. Whether we're fearing in our own inabilities, we're fearing God and over-exaggerating the power of others, both are a failure to see the, the and, and obey the command to go, and both are a failure, God, to trust in your power and in your protection and to love your glory more than we love our own comfort. And so, God, we pray that we would not be those people that ultimately let excuses disannul your word, but, God, that we would be those people uh, that, that would follow you, that we would be those people that obey you, that we would be those people that you raise up evangelistic and, and missional fervor in, God, that we would be uh, excited about sharing the gospel with each other uh, before and after church, God, that we would be excited about sharing the gospel with our children and our unsaved spouses and our coworkers, and God, that you would raise up people from our church to, to engage in missions domestically and around the world, that you might be glorified, but God, as 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 you said to Paul, so that men and women might turn from darkness, be rescued, be repentant, and be added to the people of God. And we ask God that you would do those works through us, that you would make Union Baptist Church a missionary and evangelistic outpost. And we pray these things, O oh God, based on your word and for your glory. Amen. Have our ushers come forward this morning for the offering. And uh, this, this month, as we've been focusing on a different missionary each month we are focusing on you this month because you are a missionary wherever God has put you wherever God has placed you uh, he's given you connections and he's given you a sphere of influence that that really in in truth is unique to only you there are people that you could speak to that that really only you could speak to in in that way uh, that God has put uh, you in their life he's put you next to them on the line he's put children in your home he's given you spouses he's given you mothers and fathers and cousins and and people that you have the opportunity to share the gospel with and we really do want to become a church at union baptist that is committed to growing disciples and and of course growing disciples begins with sharing the gospel and so let us pray that that god might shape us in that way lord we come to you uh this morning and and we ask lord that you would change us because we have to really begin with confession and the confession is that we do not uh, we do not speak of you as we ought lord we have the best news in the world and far too often we don't even think about it, it, it it's not that we think of it and and don't choose uh, to share the gospel we we just simply don't even it doesn't even register in our minds so often lord but the reality is that the people that we work with in that office or the the people that we're on the same shift as them in the factory or the children that we have in in our classroom or or the people that we have in our home they they need the gospel more than they need life more than they need anything else and so god help that be begin to be a focus that we that we feel in a very real way, Lord, that we might become those who, who openly share the gospel with the people in our community. Uh, God, help us in, in this way. We pray for the offering that's given, Lord, uh, that you might use it for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ruth. We're going to start a new series this morning uh, through the book of of Ruth, so we'll be in Ruth chapter one uh, this morning. Ruth is somewhat of, of a unique book for for various different reasons: uh, the brevity of the book, the fact that it's named after a woman, and after a woman who is uh, not even an Israelite. Uh, 
the beauty of the story is, is something that really makes the book of Ruth stand out. Uh, there, there's just so much about this story that is unique, but really uh, the greatest thing of all is, is learning more about the Lord. As we study any book of the Bible, what we should come away with and realize is that uh, all of Scripture is given to be a revelation of God. It, it reveals who God is. And so as beautiful as the story is and as, as wonderful as uh, we see some of the, the things about the, uh, the characters in the story, the, the greatest point of the story is really to learn more about who God is. And who that God is in, in the book of Ruth is a God who is governing uh, every detail of the universe and working it out for his end and for his purpose, which is ultimately for the good of his people. And uh, he does that in a very dramatic fashion. He does it in a very difficult fashion, but he does that in the book of Ruth. So let's read this morning, starting at verse number one. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man in Bethlehem and in, in Judah went out uh, to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was in, where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, uh, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband." Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore ref refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that, she was determined to go with her. She said no more. So the two of them went until they had come to till they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest.
I think I used a word in, in the introduction earlier, a word providence. If I didn't, uh, what I, one of the things I want us to see as we go through this story, when we, we talk about God's control of this situation, uh, a, a word that sometimes comes to mind and is used to describe this is, is the word providence. Uh, providence is the idea, and it's something I think we see throughout Scripture. Uh, in short, providence is the involvement uh, God's involvement in and sovereign control over all the details of this life. The doctrine of providence is the biblical teaching that God is intricately involved in the greatest and smallest details of every square inch of the created universe in such a way that He governs all things according to His will. I wrote that out and that seems to be a very technical and, and tried to be nuanced description of providence. And we could talk about providence in a sort of intellectual way. Or, as the writer does here in the book of Ruth, we, we could tell a story that could describe what providence looks like. And the story of Ruth is a story of God's providence in the life of His people. It's, it's God's sovereign hand governing and guiding the affairs of human beings to His intended purpose. And, and oftentimes through great trial, oftentimes through great difficulties, oftentimes to, to His people, to, to their own dismay, not understanding why God would work in this way or, or, or why God is moving in this direction or why God would allow this, but knowing all the while that it is God who is guiding this. It is God who is allowing this. It is God who is bringing this about. A couple of, I think, rather beautiful descriptions of uh, providence are given. I was reminded of these as, as I studied this week. One, one is the Heidelberg Catechism, which asks the question, what do we understand by the providence of God? What do we understand by the providence of God? And the answer is this, the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with His hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that the leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, Prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. By His fatherly hand. The, the Belgic Confession puts it this way, we believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to His holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. Now there are people who would seek to present a different view of God than that. There, there are those who would say that God created this world, Deus, that God created this world. He wound it up like a, like a clock and He lets it go and it just runs. He gave it certain principles. It, it, it operates according to certain laws, but God is sort of hands off. The Bible knows not that God. That is not the God of the Bible. There are others who want to minimize the level of God's sovereign control, not, not get rid of it altogether, but minimize it. And they do so by saying, well, God has granted us freedom in such a way that, that God is in some ways restricted. But the Bible shows God is fully engaged with His creation. And while there is certainly an interplay between human freedom and God's control uh, over the world, the Bible would have us understand that even our freedom, even the free choices that we make, it operates under the realm and under the umbrella of God's sovereign control. God sovereignly uses even our freedom to accomplish His purpose. That's what it means to be God. That's what it means when Ruth says that He's Almighty. When she calls Him twice the Almighty One, she's saying He's the One who has all the power. The Almighty has done this. That's what we mean when we say that God's in control, that He's providentially guiding these things. We, we see this, the biblical evidence. I'm going to run through this really quickly. Listen, the biblical evidence all over the place is that God controls everything. Uh, God sustains even even the existence of the universe 
is here by God's almighty hand. Hebrews 1.3 says that God the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says that all things hold together. They consist in him. So even the universe itself, God is upholding it. God is speaking it by the word of his power. His his hand is upholding it in such a way that if he ceased to speak, if he ceased or if he removed his hand, this, this world, this universe, our existence would go out of existence. God, the, the very universe itself is upheld by the hand of God. That's what we mean when we talk about providence. We talk about our freedom. Our freedom, and we are free in in a sense to make choices, but our freedom operates under the realm of of God's God's sovereign control and his upholding of the universe. He's like, well, I can make the choices that I want, right, right, but God is upholding you right now. Your very existence is dependent upon him willing you to continue to exist, right? God's in control of all things. That's what we're talking about. God the Father controls the, the, both the greatest and smallest events in the world. Acts 17, uh, I'll, I'll just mention these rather than read them, but Acts 17, 26 and 27 says that God has allotted periods of time for nations and peoples and, and their borders. We are where we are here today because God has determined for us to be here, his sovereign control. We are, our, we are Americans living in this country because God has appointed us in this time and in this place. The king and, and rulers, the book of Proverbs 21.1 says that the, the, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, which he turns in whichever dire- direction he wants. God is in control of the greatest events in this world. He's in control of nature. In the book of Job 38, 11, he says to the ocean, here are your borders. This is how, you, how far you shall go and you shall stop right here. That's as far as you'll go. God is in control of nature. God is control of even the smallest insignificant events in this world so that Jesus says, look, why are you worried about your life? Even a sparrow, even a bird doesn't fall to the ground without your father, without his involvement in that. He even knows when the hairs of your head fall to the ground, Jesus says. And for some of that, 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 that probably keeps the Lord a little bit busy uh, for some of us who are, are losing hair rapidly. Right? He knows all things. He's, he's controlling all things, e- even tragedy. That's what we're going to see in the book of Ruth. Even tragedy is under the control of God's providential care. This is the lesson of the book of Job. Who is it that allows the the tragedy into Job's life? Yes, Satan brings it about, but it is God's almighty control. Satan cannot go one step further than God allows him to go. And we just sang a minute ago, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what Job said. Job didn't say, God didn't do any of this. This wasn't God. This was all Satan. No, he said, this was the hand of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He's sovereignly in control, providentially in control of all things. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Joseph was beaten, taken away from his family, sold into slavery, lied about. And at the end of all of it, does he say, man, God, God, some bad people did bad things in my life. No, no, no. He says, Lord, you meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. God was in control of this all along. Joseph says, in the book of Ruth, this is, this is what we see here. This story helps teach us that God's providence is working all the time, even through the hardest tragedies. Providence is a, a major theme. That's why I'm talking about it so much. There's a major theme of this story. There are several themes. There's the love. That, that's what many of us kind of latch on to the love of Boaz for Ruth, the, lo- the love of Ruth for Naomi and their loyalty. It's, it's beautiful. It is wonderful. And so that's a major, a major theme, that kind of selfless love. There's, there's the theme of God's redemption and how through all of this catastrophe, he's working it out and, and, and he redeems 
uh, this situation. And, and he does something so wonderful uh, through this tragedy. So there is redemption as well. But, but even those themes are built on this theme of the providence of God. The love of Boaz for Ruth, the love of Ruth for Naomi, that's a wonderful thing. But but what we see is even in those actions, that is God providing for his people. That is God providentially bringing people into the lives of Naomi and Ruth who will care for them and sustain for them and be, in, in one sense, God's provision for them. God is bringing that about. And certainly the story of redemption is brought about by God. God's the one that sends the famine. God's the one uh, that that takes the lives of of these people. God is the one who leads Naomi and Ruth back. God is the one who gives Ruth a child. God is the one who raises up, ultimately, as we'll see this story unfold, who raises up King David and who from that later raises up our Messiah, Jesus Christ. The characters in this account operate on the assumption that God rules everything including their tragedy, and this story, it it proves them right. The drama of the story is seeing them sort of wrestle with that, uh, with trying to interpret it, the hard providence of God, because it's one thing to stand up here and preach about the providence of God. It's another thing to be right in the middle of what we would call a hard providence of God, a, a, a tragedy or a calamity or a trial that God sovereignly and providentially brings into your life. It, it's a different thing to be in the middle of that and understand God is allowing this. And so we see Ruth and Naomi wrestling with that, that reality. We saw that in the text here, and we're going to look at it in a minute. The power of this story is in seeing fragile humans who are striving to remain faithful to a God who in the moment does not seem to be faithful to them. The beauty of this story is seeing God work through the sacrificial love of his people for one another. And the wonder of this story is coming to realize that all along, God was working through these tragedies and trials to bring something so good that if Ruth and Naomi knew it at the start, they would say, yes, God, this is is right. Let's take this path. This is what we ought to do. You see, on this side of difficult and challenging circumstances, on this side of hard providences, we would never be able to say, yes, God, do that. Yes, God, bring famine. That's a a good decision. Yes, Almighty, it is right for you to take the life of my husband. Yes, Lord, you are not wrong to prematurely take my two sons from me. Yes, Lord, please strip away everything that I have. Yes, None of us would say that on this side of it, but, but what we see in this story as it unfolds and, and at the end of it, as it comes to an end, we, we realize we would never be able to say those things on this side of it, but at least at the end, we can at least affirm on the other side of it that God was righteous and that he was good and that his judgments are wonderful. And I hope we can get to that place as we work through the book of Ruth, because here's the reality. Hard providences are certain. Do you know that? Maybe you haven't experienced that. For some of you, you say, I know that. I've already been through those hard providences. I've already been through overwhelming trials and tragedies in in my life. But hard providences are certain. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that no temptation, that word can be a temptation to sin or a trial, but, but no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And so you read the story of Ruth, and this is what you need to know. Maybe in the severity or the number or the difficulty, the particular difficulty, uh, maybe those kind of things are unique in the book of Ruth, but the kinds of trials that she goes through are the kinds of trials that all of us will face. You will face hard times. The death of loved ones, feeling alone. You are certain to face uh, times when you're unsure of God's provision for you and where you'll want to say like Naomi, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You're going to want to say that. There are going to be moments in your life when you will want to say that God's hand is against me. You may escape most of life without these kinds of things, but they will come Eventually, this week I was visiting with with Sam, and I think for those of you who know Sam and Ruth, you, you know that mostly they've had a good life. They've had some trials, but they, they had a good life. 
but but one of the things that struck me as we talked, he he began to break down and and to cry, and he just said, "I, I don't understand. I don't know why it has to be like this. I don't know why I have to be here." Sam loved to work. I mean, he, he was probably a workaholic. I mean, he worked a regular job and farmed, and he loved to go out and be busy in life. And he's like, I just don't know why. I just don't understand. I know I'm going to heaven. I'm trusting Jesus. I trust the Lord. But, but I don't know why I have to just sit here and not be able to, to do anything, not be able to go anywhere. Well, the book of Ruth has something to say to Sam and to you and to all of us because all of us are going to be in those situations hard providences are certain in your life secondly we see that hard providences are hard hard providences are hard we see this in in these first five verses i'm just stating the obvious but sometimes the reason i'm stating the obvious is sometimes as christians we like to gloss over the difficulty of life we like like to sing about when we all get to heaven yeah, we, we are all going to get to heaven, but sometimes that road to heaven is a very difficult, very trying road, all right? And so one day there is going to be the glory of a new heavens and new earth. One day there is going to be the experience, the full experience of eternal life, but, but some people right now are walking in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, and that's hard, and we don't need to minimize that. Hard providences are hard. They're often swift. One person noticed noticed here that just in five verses five verses Ruth's life is completely flipped upside down in in just a very short time rather Naomi's life and I'm going to confuse those names so just get used used to it but Naomi's life is completely turned upside down for some of you God's hard providence in your life will mean that in a very short time you'll go from what you would maybe consider your dream life to something you don't even recognize anymore. You're not even sure what this is, this this new reality that you're brought into. The car accident or the sudden heart attack will rob you of people who seem to be an immovable fixture in your life. You you never thought, you never dreamed about living life without this person or without this thing in your life, but but in a very short time it can all be gone. That's what happened to, to Ruth. First her husband, and then her two sons. And, and in five verses, everything that she loved, everything that she knew is stripped away. She leaves her homeland. Her husband's taken from her. Her children are taken from her. She's left without anything. Or so she thinks. Hard providences are hard because they're often life-altering so often we define our, our identity by the things around us, the relationships, the, the people who are, who are there. But all of that's stripped away. She, she's driven from her, her homeland. That's, that's a particular difficulty. All of this happens, you know, if her husband dies in her homeland, at least maybe she's got some other relatives and some connections, people who will mourn with her, people who will help to support her. But she's in, in a foreign land. So all of that's taken away. Moab was not like going to... F- to Florida. I mean, this was not a, a good move for them. This was, this was really them becoming refugees, seeking, seeking just to be able to stay alive. And then all the dearest people are taken from her. And she's left to wonder, what, what is life? What is life even? How do I even define my life now? What do I do? Where do I go? Who, who am I? If, I, if I'm, I don't have a husband, I don't have children, and I'm not even in my homeland, who, who am I even? And some of you will experience those kinds of trials in this life. Hard providences can leave us feeling like life is gone. That's why the, the psalmist can say things like describing trials that he goes through and talk about like the earth giving way. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Have you, have you ever experienced anything or gone through anything like that that it feels like the, the ground is just being shaken and removed from under, underneath you? It only took five verses for that to happen in the life of Naomi. And, and it can only take two words for you. It might be the doctor in two words just saying it's cancer. It might be a phone call. There's been an accident. It might be one tragic discovery that he's cheating. Or it might be one quick visit to the office where, you know, we're going to have to let you go. Your life can change that quickly. These hard providences can, can come that quickly and your life can be 
really upside down. Are you prepared for, for those moments? Well, let's move on. We, we see that the hard providences, thirdly, hard providences require honest faith. Hard providences require an honest faith. This is what we see, I think, in, in Naomi, at least, at least partially. Look, look at the way that Naomi wrestles with this. Look at verse number 13, where she says, uh, Would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The hand of the Lord is against me. There are times in your life where an honest faith is going to have to recognize that. I know God's in control. I know God is, is, is sovereignly governing all these things, but the hand of the Lord is against me. And look at verses 20 and 21. Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means pleasant, when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. You know, you can read those statements of, of Naomi and you can try to discern whether she's demonstrating faith or not, but that's pretty easy to do in, in an air-conditioned building, in a comfortable chair when everything's all put together in your life. Uh, we don't need to be like Job's friends. We don't need to be like Job's friends who... who, who, who uh, really had a negative view on all that was going on in, in Job's life. We need to leave room for the kinds of things that the psalmist says when the, the psalmist says, God, why have you forgotten me? That's, that's what an honest faith will sometimes say. Why, why have you forgotten me? Why is your hand against me? Why are you allowing this? Hard providences are hard and, and we don't need to be too quick to try to sanitize them and, and try to spiritualize it all away. Sometimes we simply need to weep with those who weep. And if we're the ones who are going through it, sometimes what we need to do is, is not try to explain it away and try to over-spiritualize and sanitize. We just need to recognize the Lord is working in a way that is really hard right now. That's okay to say. It's okay to say it seems like the Lord has forgotten me. It's okay to say it seems like the hand of the Lord is against me or that God has brought, brought calamity into my life. But listen, hard providences, while we need that honest faith, hard providences should not lead us to reject God's sovereign control. You see, Naomi continued to see that God is in control. Even if she didn't understand exactly why God was doing this, she never denied that this was a work of God. She never turned away from the Lord. She did not deny God. She did not deny His control. She says the hand of the Lord is against me. In verse 20, she calls God the Almighty. The Almighty is the one who has all power. He's almighty. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. We can see that she had a, a proper view of God. If He's the Almighty, it does us no good to try to explain away His control of the situation. If He has all power and you get cancer, then He's allowed it. It's part of His purpose in your life. And He's going to work through it for, for your good. If, if God is not in control, then, then we're in, left in a worse condition because we're left in a position where we say, well, this thing God didn't allow, but it happened anyway, right? That's not a good place to be. If God didn't allow it, then maybe God can't remedy it. Then God can't use it for his own good and bring glory out of it. She doesn't avoid that challenge. She, she meets it square on. Another thing that we should see in this, I think, is that hard providences should lead us to evaluate our actions. She says in verse 21, the Lord has testified against me. In other words, Naomi had been thinking about this situation. And, and Naomi, the, the providences, the hard providences of God in her life had led her to evaluate, have I been living my life in a way that's pleasing to God? Are, are there things that, that I've done that, that God is bringing this into my life to correct me. And, and Naomi's view of that, her own estimation is, when she says that the Lord has testified against me, her own estimation of that is, yes, there are things in my life that God is correcting as a, as a loving Heavenly Father. He's testifying against me. He's working in this way. 
And, and we could look to the text and we could see some of those things that, that are going on in Naomi's life. First of all, we see that this is in the time of the judges. We see that in verse 1. In, in the time when the judges rule. And one thing that we know about the time of the judges is that this was not a good time. This was not a time when people were being faithful to the Lord. It was a time, the repeated refrain of the book of Judges is, it was a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time when people were not faithfully living for the Lord. And, and perhaps Naomi and her family was, was caught up in that in some way. We see that the Lord brings a famine. And we know in, in, in the Old Testament particularly, that is a sure sign of God's judgment, a sure sign of his, uh, of his discipline in the life of his people. He told them, this is what's going to happen. If I bring you into this land and you worship me and you keep my commandments and you obey me, I will bless you. you your, your life will prosper. Your, your land will prosper. You will be, have plenty of crops, I'll send rain, but if you disobey me, if you serve other gods, I will bring famine and, and other things. But that's a sure sign throughout the Old Testament of God's judgment. As a result of that famine, Naomi and her husband went to Moab. I think we can at least say, at the very least, that that was less than a faithful response for them to go to Moab, for, for them to leave the land that God had given them. Perhaps they were on the brink of starvation and had absolutely no other option. But, but it seems to me that they're just simply saying, maybe things will be a little bit better in, in Moab. Why not stay in the land that God had given you and, and seek to bring repentance among the people? Seek to turn the people back to God and, and, and humble yourselves as, as God later promises that he would then heal the land and, and, and bring restoration. And then we see Naomi and her husband allowing their sons to marry Moabite women, which was forbidden uh, for them to marry people from other nations because that always involved a move toward idolatry. It's not an issue of any kind of racism. It's just simply this. They worship and serve other gods. And if you marry them, you will be pulled away toward that. And that's what happens repeatedly in, in the Old Testament. So when Ruth says that the Lord has testified against me, I have very little doubt that she's wrestling with some of those decisions in her life and she's wrestling perhaps with other sin in her life and she's re recognizing this is, a, this is a thing that God has brought into my life to bring correction. And I think when, when things like that come into our lives, when trials come into our lives, listen, if you're a faithful believer, you cannot help but examine what, how have I been living? How have I been living? Now there's times, right? The Bible would teach us like in, in the life of Job. In all of this, he did not sin. God is clear to say that. And so we don't always assume that there's some sin causing this, but we would be foolish to assume that, that sin doesn't factor into it at all. We need to at least examine this because we realize that often the trials that God, the hard providences that God brings into our life are a form of God's discipline. And Hebrews 13 tells us that he disciplines every son, every child that he has. And so even as we do that, though, we must not assume that we have the full picture. One of the things about God is that God works for various purposes in his actions. You know, God can be correcting sin and he can also be bringing something good into your life. In, in the long term, God, God can be doing multiple things with with one action. Perhaps God was bringing some discipline into Naomi's life. Perhaps God was correcting Naomi. But we're going to see that God was also doing much more than that because God was working out his plan to bring about King David and, and in his providence to provide a king for his people. God's doing that, but he can do both of those things simultaneously so we can never assume that because we know a reason that God has allowed something that we know the full reason when we say we must have an honest faith we mean that yes we must be honest about the reality that God has moved in some ways that are against us in, in the sense of bringing trial in our life but we must also understand that when he seems to be working against us He's also working for us, even if we can't see it in that moment. And that's what I'm talking about. We've got to have an honesty, say, this hurts. 
this is really hard. And I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that. I don't want to just, I don't want to just say it'll get better all by and by. I don't want to just pass over that too lightly and just jump on to, yeah, one day in heaven, everything, you know, we need to allow ourselves and other people the space to say, yes, this is really hard. The hand of the Lord is against me. But when we say an honest faith, we also need to have faith. We need to have an honest faith. We need to be honest about the circumstances, but we also need to have faith. Yes, God is going to work this out. God is going to bring about good in my life. Recognizing the disciplining hand of God, but also recognizing that God's discipline always comes with grace and mercy. And that's our final point point this morning is that hard providences often come with hidden blessings. When Paul prayed in the New Testament, he said he prayed three times, Lord, remove this thorn. There was a thorn in his flesh. He said a trial that he was undergoing. He said, I prayed three times. And God's response was, no, my, my grace is sufficient. You see, you see what God is saying there to Paul? God is saying, I'm not going to remove this hard providence. There's something in your life that is really difficult for you, the Apostle Paul. But I, I'm not going to remove that, but my grace is sufficient. With that trial... I'm also giving you grace. And that's what we see in the book of Ruth. Yes, there's a great trial. It's it's hard to even wrap your mind around the difficulty that that Naomi was undergoing in her life. But what we see is that with those hard providences also come hidden blessings. Naomi, Naomi didn't see those in the moment. You see in verse 21, what does she say? All the women come running up to her. She comes in back to town. Is this Naomi? Like they can't believe it. And uh, she says, don't, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. And she says, I went away full. I had a husband. I had children. We had hope. I went away full. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Is that right? Did the Lord bring her back Empty? Well, I, I think Ruth was right, or Naomi was right earlier when, when she said the hand of the Lord is against me and those kind of things that we would say that's an honest faith. But, but here, I don't think this is exactly accurate. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord did not bring her back empty. The Lord stripped away much, but he didn't bring her back empty. We see, first of all, the reason that she came back was that she heard in the fields of Moab that once again, God had begun to visit his people. God was once again bringing blessing upon his people. So, so there's that encouragement. But, but more than that, uh, because God brought back with her a devoted, faithful friend who was determined to stay by her side. I, I, you just imagine, put yourself in the, the shoes of Ruth. So all these women are running up and they're saying, oh, it's it's Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi. The Lord has brought me back empty. And if you're Ruth standing over here, what are you thinking? Hey, I'm here. You're, you're not exactly alone. I, I just forsook my mom and my dad. I just left all of my relatives, my home country. I, I swore allegiance to your God and your people to be with you. I'm here with you. The Lord has not brought you back empty. Ruth had left everything. And we see the beautiful words in verses 16 through 18. Where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my people. Where you die, I will die. What what loyalty. There was no reason. There was nothing compelling uh, Ruth to make that decision. This was not beneficial to her to do that, right? The most beneficial thing Ruth could have done was stay with her family. That would have been the best thing for her. There was more security there in Moab for her. But she chose because of her love and devotion to Naomi to, to go with Naomi. There was no benefit to be found in her going in that direction. And so in doing that, she demonstrated such a a wonderful love and commitment. And there she is. The Lord did not bring Naomi back empty. He he brought her back with, with Ruth, a loyal, faithful friend, and, and the means of her salvation, really. Not her spiritual salvation, but the means of deliverance out of this trial. 
It's going to be through Ruth uh, that, that Boaz comes into their life and provides. It's going to be through Ruth that a grandchild is born uh, who, who is able to support them and, and so on. It's through Ruth that these things happen. And, and yet she doesn't see it. You, you see, Naomi is so focused in that moment on what is wrong. And listen, there is much that is wrong. And she's not wrong to, to recognize that. But she's become so focused on what is wrong that she can't see what's right there. She, she's become bitter. I'm, I'm bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Right? And, and this is what we need to be careful for. Romans 8.28 is playing out in, in Naomi's life, all things work together for good. And, and things are, are working together for her good. She can't see it right now, but she's not looking for it. She, she doesn't see it. And I would just say to us this morning, you're going to go through trials. You need an honest faith. You, you need a, a view of God that, that helps you make sense of all of this. But you also need to learn to look for the hidden blessings in those hard providences. We need to hone our skills at finding those hidden blessings, the little things that don't erase the pain, but do help soften the blow and do give us hope for the future. The reality is there, there are some things we're simply not going to be able to see. Ruth, Ruth couldn't see or Naomi couldn't see all of this that was going to unfold, the Boaz and the grandchild and King David and the Messiah. She couldn't see all that, but she, what she could have seen though were she looking for it? Were this, was this friend who loved her so much? She could not have imagined all of that, but she could have seen the small blessing of a young Moabite woman who so affectionately loved her. If you're in the middle of a hard providence, are you seeing God's grace in that moment? That's what I would challenge you with this morning. There, there are hidden blessings. You're going to have hard providences in your life, but there are hidden blessings. Are, are you seeing those hidden blessings? So we close this morning. I, I, I just ask you to think about really the hardest providence of, of all time. The darkest time that anyone has ever experienced on this life was our Savior, Christ, as He was hanging on the cross. And He's crying out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? There's that honest faith Again, there's the recognition of this is, this is difficult. This is hard. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's that hard providence. And yet, in that moment, at the very same time when God is bringing about the darkest time ever on the face of this earth, He's also pouring out the greatest amount of grace ever as He's working to redeem us. That's what's going on in Ruth's life. That's what's going on at the cross. And that's what's going on in your life when those trials come. God is bringing some hard providences, but He's also working and pouring out grace in your life to redeem you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning. We thank You, Lord, though we don't always understand how You are working. We thank You that You are working. And we thank You for Your promise that You are working for your glory and for our good. God, help us and, and train us to be able to trust you in those difficult moments. Help us to be able to experience, even in those moments, the small tokens of your grace, uh, which really are, are, are road signs pointing us ahead that there's much more grace to come. Help us to be able to trust your heart, even when we cannot trace your hand. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.